This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Delicious Ella podcast with me, Matthew Mills, and my wife and business partner, Ella Mills. Hi, everyone. So today... I'm very excited about our guest today. I've been a huge, huge fan of his writing. We have Matt Haig here today. For anyone who's not familiar with his work, he um, is a brilliant author, but I'm particularly a massive, massive fan on his work on mental health. I first read his book, Reasons to Stay Alive, actually while we were on our honeymoon, and um, I've just found it incredibly powerful, and his new book, Notes on a Nervous Planet, has become my absolute go-to. So we're going to talk a little bit about kind of general mental health today, um, the stigma around mental health, dealing with it, but also looking really at the kind of connection between the modern world, technology, social media, the kind of busyness, the stress of life today and how that's starting to impact on us and what we can do about it. So Thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me. Um, So, Matt, for anyone who's not familiar with your work, can you just give a bit of background on your story and how the books came about? Yeah. Well, in terms of mental health stuff, I mean, I'd written novels before. So when I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive, I'd I'd done about 10 books before that. But I'd been building up to sort of writing about my experience of mental health for years and never knew how to do it. And I I basically had a full-blown breakdown even though breakdown is not a medical term that's still how I see it at the age of 24 I mean technically it was um, panic disorder depression anxiety a whole smorgasbord of you know mental stuff and there was a particular event that caused it or was it no well you know at the time I didn't think or know any of the causes and that's why I became suicidal quite quickly because I had no idea how I'd got into the situation so I had no idea how to get out of the situation so I hadn't been living um, physically healthy I'd been sleeping badly we'd been in a beefer being sort of um, young clubbing partying people but I hadn't, hadn't been into drugs I've been drinking too much I've been sleeping badly and um, I was about to come home and sort of get back into the real world with um, working in London and stuff. And I I think it was a kind of quarter-life crisis uh, catching up with me, combined with not being physically healthy, combined with just life stresses. And I think I'd had low-level depression for years that I hadn't been aware of. So I was doing that sort of typical young man thing of, you know... I would have said, actually, the week before I had a breakdown, that I was a fun-loving person, that I was a happy person, that there were no problems, but I would have been wrong. And I just wasn't very in tune with myself. And it's taken me a long time. And in both reasons to stay alive and Notes on a Nervous Planet, I think my motivation for writing them was to actually explore um, things, to help people, obviously, but for me, selfishly, to just explore the connections between how I was feeling and how I was living. Amazing. Yeah, there was a quote that I thought was really powerful, Notes on a Nervous Planet, where you said, 
um, in the lowest moments, you thought you'd never be able to enjoy music again or food or books or conversation or sunlight or holiday or anything. I was rotten to my core like a diseased tree every day and that pit was hell. Yeah, which is quite <laughs> yeah i know um i put put it all out there i don't yeah i i, I was in a really bad way and and how uh, long were you in such a bad way for well i was proper properly ill as in if you count being too ill to leave a house on my own i was ill for about three years when i was living in spain we went straight away uh, andrea my partner she, she sort of forced me straight away to go to the um Spanish Medical Centre, I got some pills, and there was the Valium, the diazepam. That didn't work. Um, then, when I was back in the UK, um, I had a couple of sort of bad or mediocre experiences with um, the GPs. I did every single thing my mum was telling me to do, like go to homeopaths, all kinds of stuff. I was literally trying everything, and nothing seemed to sort of work. And then after that, I, I kind of gave up, because the actual sort of looking was making me sort of more stressed out so I wouldn't recommend it to anyone but in my situation that's what I was doing and also combined with the fact that I was agoraphobic the fact that sort of doing anything was making me have a a panic attack even watching tv was sort of like too much for me at that point it sounds so strange and pathetic but that's the sort of situation I was in I did eventually get better and I think one of the things I you know I say relatively better I'm not a hundred percent physically or mentally and I, I mean I don't think any of us are but I, yeah. you know I, I I gave up sort of believing in total 100% betterness because that was one of the things that kept me in the bad place because um, every time I thought I was 100% better and then I'd have a dip or a panic attack or something yeah. then it would all come crashing down so I stopped believing that all or nothing yeah. and realizing it was just something I have to sort of constantly um, keep on top of but having said that all the doom and gloom stuff I'm I've known more happiness in my life this side of that breakdown. I've known more sort of good things, more good things have come out of it. I wouldn't want to go through it again. But in terms of regretting stuff, um, obviously I missed a lot of time in my 20s. But I, I, I like to believe that if you know an experience of that sort of intense pain, um, it sort of broadens you afterwards for intense pleasure or at least intense gratitude at sort of the normal neutrality of just living and what tools have you used to create that greater sense of happiness Um, well i think you know it's not necessarily conscious tools it's just the fact that i'm aware of how lucky it is to sort of be in a position of relative health when you've known the opposite i mean when i was younger again being that sort of typical young person often wanting the most intense experiences and I used to have to have the most intense experiences to be happy and since since illness I've um been able to just be you know I haven't sort of craved getting out of my head I haven't craved sort of always having to have the loudest music or most intense experiences and that appreciation of just sort of like looking at the sky just smaller things yeah yeah, smaller things um you know live by the sea just sort of like going for a run by the sea you know just life stuff just being appreciative 
One of the other things you talk about, which I really like as well, is in that sense of appreciation is also just appreciating where you are today and that we have this tendency nowadays. And I think we all recognize it in ourselves of the kind of what ifs when I, you know, when I achieve this, I will be happy. When I look like this, yeah. I will be happy. If I lose weight, I will be happy. If I can run a marathon, I will be happy. And it's like you can't be happy now because yes. you're imagining this parallel life, this sense of, you know, I'm not good enough today. I might be good enough in the future. And if I'm good enough in the future, I'll be happy totally and we're all encouraged to do that i can remember thinking oh i will be eternally happy forever and ever if i got my sort of first book published if i just got my name on a book it doesn't have to be out on a table in a bookshop it just had a name on a book and obviously that lasts for about two weeks and then you're wanting the next thing and then you want then you're comparing yourself to other published people and stuff whatever it is whatever your walk of life you do that and but it's being a bit more mindful of it because i i've got a theory that we're kind of encouraged subconsciously to be anxious yeah feel a bit unfulfilled i feel like a lot of the economy and certainly like branding and marketing is run on that it's run on sort of creating um problems or highlighting problems and then providing solutions because i mean most of us are lucky enough in the developed world to have essentially the things we need the things that are sort of like cave person neolithic ancestors would have um struggled for we've solved the essential problems of being a human so we've sort of created and manufactured lots of other stuff and we've still got the same anxiety in our head so i think fear is used a lot in marketing there's even an acronym fud which is fear uncertainty and doubt which they like to sort of instill in um brands i suppose the obvious one would be something like a anti-aging moisturizer or something where um, you're fighting the inevitable yeah yeah obviously we're all worried naturally about aging but you know the, the exploitation of our natural sort of fears it's presence isn't it i mean yeah. i think the key to happiness i think if i look at my happiest moments in life um and other people i love and <clears throat> know well their happiest moments in life is just when they've been completely and utterly present and you're not worried about the future or the past you're yeah. just focused on the moment you're in i think there was a really interesting study with uh, graduates at harvard and the and high depression rates uh, within them where they had always been successful and so and because they'd only ever got straight A's and then got into the best university and then were chasing the best summer internships and the best jobs that was what they expected to do so they never took a moment to stop and celebrate and be present in the success of and joy of of doing something so great and it was this constant chase of something more 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 um that caused um that that caused the anxiety and 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 the stress on them rather than just actually appreciating and being so grateful and joyful about just the yeah, thing that you've just yeah. achieved and celebrating that and internalizing it and and being present with that moment on that one things as well that one is such on is that idea um that you talk about of kind of collective emotion the fact that because we're now so connected that you are constantly and you have a page where you list like a brilliant thing of all these really depressing headlines about how anxious we are how depressed we are how unhappy we are and the fact that we're constantly it's like we're constantly being kind of reinforced by that and there's um there was a brilliant quote, actually. A completely connected world has the potential to go mad all at once, which I really liked and wanted to kind of touch on that sense that because we're all so connected today, it's almost like we feel each mm-hmm. other's pain kind of so deeply. Yeah, and I think that's why I called it Nervous Planet, because not only are we all sort of, well, a lot of us get stressed out quite easily, but also um, nervous in the sense of a nervous system. It's like we're all part of this global 
um, nervous system now with the internet. And um, there is such a thing as collective psychology, you know, and, and there's lots of positive and negative examples of it in the past, whether it's witch trials or Beatlemania or whatever it is, we, we, we sort of like have contagious emotions. And if, if we're all connected in a sort of digital sense now, then our psychologies are connected. So like, for instance, I, I've overused Twitter and you see a lot of heated political or whatever arguments over on Twitter. And it's very easy to believe you're sort of arguing with someone who's the opposite of you because they're politically different. But you're actually doing exactly the same thing because you're sort of like in a sort of... Keyboard he- warriors. Yeah, key- keyboard warriors trying to win an argument that you're never going to convince the other person of your own point of view, feeling that sort of anxiety or anger in your chest. And, um, yeah, from this sort of alien's perspective in the sort of cosmos, they're looking down and just seeing this hot technological rage <laughs> going on. And so on that kind of technological um, point and the internet, because I think you kind of can't escape that we do live in the world of social media and kind of connectivity. And I know we touched on it just before we started recording. Like, you know, I do think social media can be amazing. It can bring people together. It can normalise things because you can understand you're not on your own and something. You can get ideas. You know, we can do something like this podcast where we can hopefully share inspiring information. But at the same time, there, there are negative sides to it and it definitely you kind of can't get away from the fact that it can have a negative impact massive on social media so have have you found that it's uh, do you have to be careful for how how much you sort of scroll through comments and things like that 100 percent. we were literally talking about this last night i mean for me the channel and i know it's your most used channel that i don't really use because i know for me it's kind of doesn't work as Twitter because Twitter has such a sense of kind of anonymity. And it's brutal. Totally. And I find that you'll do, I don't know, a segment on this morning or whatever it is and just so many people will come on and it's like, it feels like the ultimate place for a keyboard warrior. And for me, it's, I, I can't help but kind of sometimes get sucked into it and then really get nervous about it. Or, and I think what you were just saying resonated as well. Like sometimes you'll, you'll see a negative comment and it's kind of hostile towards you. And as a result, you kind of take on this hostile emotion and you didn't feel hostile at all before you read it and you started replying to it. But one thing Matt always says to me, sometimes you're looking at 500 comments, there's 499 really lovely comments and there's one negative comment and yet you're drawn to it and he'll go through, he'll sometimes call me up and he's like, why have you only responded (laughs) to that one negative one? And it's so true, like it's such a reflection on how easy it can be sometimes to get sucked into the space and it's also going back to that thing of always you know never being happy it's like you literally can have thousands of people probably in your case saying lovely things and it will be that 0.001 percent yeah that that is absorbing like 99 percent of your mental energy because you're sort of focused on that i look at some i'm a complete sports nut and so i follow lots of footballers and stuff on instagram you know, you see the comments on some of the comments on their yeah. pages. It's horrendous. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, they just get absolutely yeah. torn apart. And um, with Instagram, you know, t- to your point, with social media, we talk about this a lot with, with what we do is that you know, Instagram really is, we think, anyway, a place for inspiration. And it's something where, you know, if the picture's not great, the algorithm gets it. It doesn't, yeah, you don't, it doesn't get engaged. It's a vibe. People, yeah. people mm. I feel like, you know, when I switch between Instagram and Twitter, there's almost a psychological yeah. switch yeah. goes on. You're sort of like almost putting on your boxing gloves on Twitter. Yeah. And with Instagram, you feel like, oh, you're just sort of... Yeah, yeah but it's it's also a place where you have to be you have to be try and be honest mm. um but getting that 
right balance between providing real inspiration but showing people that this is just a highlights reel it's not the complete reality yes. you know our bedroom's still messy or we're still stressed about something at work but engaging people because we're trying to inspire them to eat more plant-based food is you know yeah. getting that balance of, of of the the dream and the reality is is really difficult to do yeah. yeah and on a rainy tuesday morning in march people forget sometimes that they're looking at someone's best bits if they're looking at someone leaning against a palm tree in bali or, you know <laughs> exactly. and they're, they're going getting on the bus to their job in croydon and it's yeah. like, but i do think this um having access and it's not just social media it's the internet in general that sense of kind of 24 7 connectivity does now invite in a world of comparison and i think that all these things are what's making it really hard to be present because you're always aware of what someone else is doing, what someone else is potentially achieving that you feel you're not achieving. And As you say in your book, comparison is the thief of joy, which is yeah. which is which is so true. Yeah, and it, I think it's hard. You know, like you don't realise until you've achieved at least some of your dreams that it doesn't stop. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's exactly. Not, there's not an end point to that. You think, oh, and actually, you can actually get into a crisis when you actually get the thing you want because yeah. you suddenly realise, oh, that wasn't the problem. You know, it's very easy to think, oh, I'm unhappy because I haven't got X, Y, or Z. Then you get X, Y, or Z and think, oh, I'm still feeling that way. And then you have a crisis. So the other thing I wanted to touch on as well is it, we're looking at this and this kind of sense of the fact that there's there's always so many things going on. You have these constant tools around you, constant ways of being able to connect. And one of the other things you you mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, and it wasn't something I'd ever thought about before, was breaking news. Mm. And about the fact you used to get news morning and evening. And let's be honest, the news can be pretty depressing. And at the moment, it is incredibly yeah. depressing. It feels though Brexit, Trump, they are they are bad themes. But it feels as though at the moment, like every time you look at your phone, a news alert pops up and it's breaking news and something terrible has happened. And you just have this like constant sense of that the world is a terrible place. But as you actually also point out, you know, there we've come a huge, a huge way in the last decades. Like actually a lot of the world's problems yes. are a lot better than they used to be. But there's this sense of negativity that pops up from that angle as well. Yeah, there aren't many stories about guide dogs there's not much positive you know there are all kinds of like positive little things that are going on in the world in terms of like conservation efforts and this that, and the other. but news by its nature uh, the things that sort of stand out in the news cycle are negative things but in the broad picture yes there's lots of um reasons to be positive there's less sort of child poverty than there was globally um you know a lot of the sort of third world is becoming uh, slowly second or thir- first world and there's a lot of um Im- improvements globally but yes we do dwell on the negative the news cycle sort of runs on the negative and it's a kind of addictive thing where we all feel the need to be up to date not just every day but every hour of every day and um i've got a a friend on facebook an american lady of a um certain age and she can remember the 70s quite clearly and she said you know we used to get our news at most twice a day you'd have your sort of morning newspaper and your 6 p.m news bulletin and they still got rid of nixon they still had the sort of social changes and a lot of progress in the 70s without that i sometimes think we're so overloaded we're almost paralyzed and it doesn't you know trump and brexit it doesn't seem to be massively evolving no. and we're, we're getting so over informed and every day there's sort of some massive revelation and yet nothing changes so i don't think there's a, a relationship between having our news more often and actually making more change yes this feels like we're now looking from distraction to distraction to distraction and that 
Yes. Is, that's really the kind of the crux of your point, right? That we're we're, that overloaded. we're so distracted that we're becoming overloaded. Yeah, we're overloaded and we're, we're distracted. I mean, I've got two kids and um, they'll be in the backseat of the car on their iPads. Before we had kids, we were never going to do that, but we do a lot of car journeys. So they're, they're totally plugged in in the back like most kids are. And they start to panic if they see it's 3% and they, they need yeah. the charger on the thing. And they literally can't understand like what, I would have done when I was a child on the backseat of a car without having any technology. I said, well, you know, we had books, or we looked out the window, or we watched the raindrops, or we were bored. Or played I Spy. (laughs) (laughs) Played I Spy, exactly, you're pointing at things. And, um, yeah, but but, 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 we're in an age now where you you never have to be bored, but you're kind of always slightly bored because we've, you know, and we've got too too much. Too much choices definitely can be a bad thing. So we've so we've talked a lot about the problems, but what are the solutions to this in a world with so much noise? Technology is not going away. Twenty four hour news isn't going away. How do we cut through all of this and and find our most best balanced self? Um, yeah, million dollar question. I have <laughs> obviously we can't put the genie in the bottle. I'm a total hypocrite on this because I I do I use the internet like everyone else and I I I get quite addicted to social media and I wouldn't ever tell anyone off for for doing that. I think they shouldn't. And in some ways, twenty years ago when I had my full meltdown. I, I would have liked to have been able to go on the internet and find like-minded people because I felt so alone and so isolated, like there's nothing else. So there's a lot of great stuff, there's a lot of great information out there and we wouldn't want to undo or turn back the clock. I think the key thing, the big, broad key thing, is to see it as a health issue. I think one of the problems is we don't see mental health really as health. You know, we see it to mm. do with personality or character flaws or what this, that and the other. And, you know, we talk a lot about mental health, but I still feel we've got this fundamental misunderstanding of mental health because we see it as so separate to physical health. We sort of base the whole healthcare system and everything else on this divide between mental and physical health. I think as soon as you see mental health as a health issue, you understand it like physical health. We understand physical health is dependent on what we eat, how we live, how we sleep, everything else. Um, Whereas with mental health, things that affect our mental health, we don't take that seriously. For instance, if someone is becoming ill and stressed out because of uh, GCSEs or their A-levels, people think, oh, well, that's good for them, a bit of stress, you know, it doesn't matter. Whereas if it was literally affecting visibly their physical health, no one would think, oh, it's worth my child smoking 20 cigarettes a day to get an A-level. But we do all sort of kind of think, oh, it's worth having that bit of stress and maybe risking anxiety disorders because of it. So I think everything would become a lot clearer if we understood mental health is real. It's a real health issue. It's integrated with physical health. It's affected, as with physical health, by the outside world and how we live. And then maybe one day, um, social media companies, news companies and stuff, will have to factor that in and there'll be a lot of pressure on them to sort of, you know, as there were with sort of fast food companies or tobacco companies or whatever, to understand it as a health issue. Yeah, yeah, and because your brain does control so much of your health. There's been this fascinating study that's just come out. They did this placebo study. It was the largest ever uh, placebo study where they said that they had given that all the people had chronic back pains and they gave 
they said they were giving half of them this new great pill for their back pain and the other half were having a placebo, but they gave everyone the placebo. But still 45% of people in the study said that after a month that their back pain was infinitely better and they couldn't believe the transformation that they had had. And it was just placebo. And then it was actually, even then when they knew it was a placebo, it was still good for them to keep taking the, and it's just ground up rice pill. It was still good for them to keep taking it. And it shows the power of the brain on the body. Absolutely. It's the most powerful, most needed. And even, tool that even we have. if, and it's totally wrong, but even if you thought mental health was just to do with your brain, your brain is a physical thing. Your yeah, thought processes are micro, and your brain is obviously a physical thing dependent on the rest of your body. And yeah, about, you know, back pain. If you've got a back pain to do with stress, like some people do, is that a physical or a mental problem? I've got tinnitus. I've got ringing in my ears. That's physical and mental. There's so many things. You can hallucinate with a fever. You can be depressed because of a, a, a diagnosis. So, you know, the, the divide between... Yeah, I have, I mean, not in a boasty way at all. I've been incredibly fortunate that I've always just been a really happy person and um i feel so incredibly fortunate for that and i last year i'm slightly jealous i am so jealous imagine living with her (laughs) because i am not that way but last year when my mum got really ill she had a big seizure last may and her um she had a surgery um and we had the first scan was in september and that was the real for me, the real big moment on if the tumour had come back, there's probably not much more that we could do because she had a very aggressive, high-grade brain cancer. And But if it hadn't come back, and after she had had um, surgery and done radio and chemo, then maybe we had a chance. And and I was in exceptionally, exceptionally close to my mum. And in September, the scan came back and the tumour had come back and work was super, super stressful at the time. And everything was just crazy and you know I've thought I had real resilience and I could just kind of get on with it and I could feel the physical um, senses of the stress that I was being caused Mm. and the grief that I was feeling um, and the hopelessness because I couldn't help mum but I thought that you know I would just be able to I'll be fine to get through it and our office is in Soho in central London I was walking from our office to go pick something up at lunchtime and I was walking I got halfway there and I literally suddenly it felt like the whole pavement was moving was moving I couldn't stand up and I um, I was like oh you know maybe I'm, it's just a sugar low or something I hadn't had any breakfast and called Ella and I said you know i think something's funny's going on and i was saying to hospital i was violently sick i uh couldn't stand up i could literally could not stand up couldn't really speak and um the next three days they thought i'd had this tag they thought i could lose my hearing over time as a result and it was my first time of really 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 feeling the effect of what mental health could do to you physically and being in that dark place of having absolutely no understanding what's happened we hadn't we've basically been working for two years straight and had a break and the doctor said they were like you need to go and you need to stop and and we went away on holiday for to Greece for a week um, afterwards and did stop and put everything away and, and I've been absolutely fine and haven't had any any symptoms since but it was the first time I got a real insight into just the power of what stress and grief can do to you and how it just completely takes you over and the only way to do something about it is not to think that you can just keep going but to actually stop and to really start to create the tools the processes the means to do something about it and the thing that 
I'm so happy about is I think particularly for men, it's been mental health has been such an issue for so long where it's something you just had to get on with. Mm. And now there is so much more conversation and an openness where it's almost a, a manly thing to talk about it and to, to get it out. And I think that that is such an enormously positive change and something I'm so such a huge supporter of. Um, and I think as m- much awareness we can bring to mm. this, the the better. No, absolutely. Well said. Um, yeah, I, I think if people understood that, if people understood how um, physical this stuff is, how it can happen to absolutely anybody, however you define your personality type, I think if you understood it like a kind of weight where we... Um, all have to carry you know and there's no one on earth who thinks that they could lift up any physical weight um you know we can't lift up five tons yet we all sort of think or a lot of us like to think that we can cope with anything but there comes an emotional weight which is just sort of too much and then we sort of buckle under it and you never know what that's what that snapping point is and ultimately you know i know we talked about that, um, and you gave great examples for the solutions for you. For me, it was it was just coming back to one a complete sense of presence, and I have no idea. You know, at that point, we knew that Mum wasn't going to live mm. a very long life. We were starting to give hope by other doctors that she may be able to live longer than we had thought she would under just the standard uh, process of care. But one, the only thing that made it better was not to think: Do we have three months? Do we have six months? Do we have a year, two years? It was just all we have to is today, mm. and so I'm just going to be super, super present and enjoy absolutely every single day with her. And then the other thing was just gratitude, and it was for me, it was just I think I've always been, and and I think it was the reason that I've managed to be a, a happy person throughout my life. So I've always had a focus on what I'm grateful for, mm. and I've, I definitely look at the world as glass half full. But it was just a sense of no matter what happens, I am so insanely grateful Amazing. to have had this person as my mum yeah. and that she will carry me and nurture me and has been my compass and my mentor throughout my life and is to have had that for 34 years and whether it's going to be for 34 years of my life or 35, 36, 37 years of my life, just to be so, 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 so grateful for that. And the only time when I would really get to... And being a place where I found it just completely all-encompassing and too difficult was when I got outside of presence or I got outside of gratitude and just having a focus on both of those things and coming back to that central place on that was the thing that always got me through. It's amazing you had that awareness, though, to actually be able to sort of know um, that's what you needed to do. I think sometimes we're just a bit harsh on ourselves. I've, you also, know, we... got, I've also got a great wife, I must <laughs> say, who is absolutely incredible. And I think that having having someone to really, really support you is absolutely is invaluable. And I think for, for men in particular, you know, we've got so much um, rubbish inside us. However well brought up we were, or however sort of open-minded and liberal our parents were, um, it's just sort of somehow socially ingrained into us that um, there's something fundamentally difficult about asking for help or admitting vulnerability and um it's, I mean, I, I was like, like, you wouldn't break your leg and be like, oh, it's fine. I'm just going to get yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to go on a run. Yeah, I'm going to go on a run. I'll just run it off. You know? But people it's like, like to, you know, it's, there's something fundamental about mental stuff, isn't there? I think people like to believe that they're in total. Okay. We control, we all kind of know we're not in total control of our bodies, but we like to believe we're in total control of our minds. But I, I think it's almost like, thing. I know when I 
so when I got physically ill, mm-hmm. to start with, it was a physical illness. And then as I started to feel kind of captive by the physical illness and that the physical illness wasn't shifting, my mental health got really bad. It had never been brilliant. It's always been something that's kind of been on and off. I know I have to kind of take care of my mind every day. I know I have tendencies to get anxious and overly worried and things, but it got very bad. And I remember my dad said to me, he said, you are depressed. I said, I'm not depressed. I'm absolutely not depressed. And I just wouldn't... I wouldn't reconcile it. It was almost like it was okay to say my physical body was weak, but to say that my mind was weak just it was I, like a judgment on yourself. Exactly. It was like you're you're not kind of good. And it was only realizing how much my mum was being affected by it that made me care. Kind of during some there were some meds I took that really affected my mind, which which didn't help. But there were, you know, there were some moments where I just really remember like how much I just really mm. didn't care to to kind of exist anymore but how much I just fought any help on that side of things how much I wouldn't own the label and it's taken me such a long time to accept how dark I got but also to accept the fact that I don't have for whatever reason however the brain works I don't have probably the best mental health disposition I don't feel as balanced as as you do every day and therefore I've got to work on it and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that and also it's like um, all illnesses or conditions or any health thing um, it's something we experience it's not something we are and that was the key thing for me to get because I when I used to be called you know given labels like panic disorder generalized anxiety disorder depression I, I took them as insults. Yeah. I thought, I'm and not, I'm not that. You. Don't yeah, say yeah. that about me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I dare you. Yeah. No. But, um, yeah, and it was, it was, to- it was totally accurate um, labels and descriptions, but it wasn't, it didn't change me. Yeah. It may have, might have dominated my life during those things, uh, you know, as a asthma attack would dominate you if you've got asthma, but it, you, you're not asthma, you're not arthritis. Exactly. Um, and you're not, depression um but it, it, it's very hard in the that initial not moment, to be defined not by it. to be defined by it and to, to have that life perspective and the biggest cliche in the world about time healing there's some truth in it when it comes to anxiety and depression and things like that because anxiety and depression gives you so much stuff in your mind that isn't true mm. i was convinced i'd be dead at the age of 25 at my own hand i was convinced my relationships would end that everything bad would happen and obviously in life Bad things happen. We lose people we love. This, you know, this, that, and the other. But not the pessimistic, intense bleakness that depression gives you. That's not an accurate worldview. And that can only be disproved by time. So it's very hard when someone's in a very dark or suicidal place to get that message into their head. And with reasons to stay alive, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to send them message in a bottle back yeah. through time. And so do you think kind of... Um conversation and openness around this is the way forward because it seems in taking your own you know very challenging and personal experiences and opening them up to the world that you know which is in a way a little bit what we've done with delicious Ella. and to me i never realized the power of that it was an accidental understanding when i i was so embarrassed of my physical illness that i didn't talk to anyone and that had such a negative impact on my mental health because i didn't want to i was so i defined myself by i and therefore defined myself as weird as different as alien as not interesting as a freak as all the rest of it and therefore thought no one would like me and then when i started talking about it and other people said well do you know what i've been through this or i've been through that and you realize you are not 
the only person dealing with this actually it's quite normal and for me it was the most reassuring thing I'd ever done and I think had a huge and profound Mm. impact is on opening up to other people yeah I mean I was so scared about opening up and um, I I, I think I wrote 10 books before that because I was sort of like building up to doing it and Reason Stay Alive was the first book I was asked by a friend to write and I don't know if I would have dared do it without that prompt Um, but once you do it once you cross the threshold you think what was I worried about? Yeah. You know, the reaction is so generally supportive. Yes, there's a bit of ignorance here or there, but generally it's warm and supportive. And also, it has that contagious effect where you suddenly feel less alone because other people are telling you their yeah. sort of survival stories and things that they've totally. overcome. And that that's very sort of nourishing. And it's very good because when I first became ill, the only person, people you ever heard... Or, or I ever heard about with mental health problems were people who ended their life because of them. And actually having the conversation makes you realise that that's the abnormal end point. Most people have some kind of mental struggle at some point in their life. They survive with it. it. And they, you know, sometimes even, you know, the cloud has that silver lining and there is light at the end of the tunnel and people actually um, have better things because of it, you know, so much good has, I don't mean career stuff, I mean life stuff, so much good has come out of my experience of mental illness, which doesn't take away from the absolute life-threatening pain of that mental illness, but I, I kind of wouldn't change it, even though I know I will have depression and anxiety again. So, Matt, first, thank you so, so much. This has honestly been incredibly inspiring and eye-opening and I hope it's been really useful for for everyone listening to and so something we do with all of our guests is we finish off the episode by asking them a mantra or a practice a routine that they do every day that that really helps them yeah well I mean my, my dad's a runner and the first sort of thing I did that I actively did was get outside and go running it didn't work at first it took a while but I think one of the things that helped me about that was um, in panic disorder, um, a lot of the symptoms of panic disorder are also symptoms of running. But you know why you're breathless with running. You know why your heart's yeah. racing. So it, it was a way of sort of having a safe space. And I sort of balance it now with yoga. But um, I still like getting outside running because you're not checking your phone while you're running mm. and you're outside and, um, yeah. It's really not realistic to think we can disconnect for an entire day as you say like we live with this technology and there are brilliant yes. things about it but can you find just a minute every day to quieten your mind and disconnect yeah and one one tiny virtuous thing i've done um which helps with my sort of relationship with social media is i don't charge my phone by my bed anymore so i charge it in the kitchen i like and, that and just having that sort of like having to get out of bed having breakfast before i'm scrolling through Instagram or whatever um, helps a little bit and also helps my sleep. Um, You know, because I think it's like ice cream. You wouldn't want to tell someone that they could never eat ice cream again, but we'd all know that if we were eating ice cream for six hours a day in bed on a Saturday nonstop, that would have health consequences. But if if our kind of take-home of today is that trying to find a way to be present and trying to find a way to accept where you are today and be very, very grateful for that, then that taps into it, doesn't it? Because it would mean every day that you start the day, you can take a minute to be present. This is where I am. I'm very happy and lucky to be where I am today. 
this is what I'm excited about today. And then you can o- open yourself up to the rest of the world, what's happening elsewhere in yeah. other people's lives, yeah. and having then, already taken look stock at the of sky. your own. I, I know this sounds so cheesy, but I'm a great believer. When I had uh, my second most serious bout of depression in my life a few years after my breakdown, um, one, and I was living in Yorkshire where there wasn't much light pollution, and I used to sort of go out at night taking the bins out or whatever I was doing and just sort of looking up and looking at stars just made you feel so happily small in time and space and you know to remind you know because we get so wrapped up in ourselves and not not that's not a a judgment we all do and that's what mental illness is you you literally wrapped up in yourself and to sort of look at the sky and just to contemplate the cosmos and the universe and all of that is quite calming. Well, it feels like a pretty perfect closing note. Um, so, Matt, thank you for coming Thanks, today. Honestly, guys. that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And if you have any feedback on this episode, we would love to hear it. So please do review it. Please do rate it and share any of that feedback with us. And otherwise, I hope you can tune in for our next episode and definitely subscribe. Um, there'll be a new episode coming out for you every Tuesday. Thanks so much, everyone. <laughs>